Welcome to The Wood Podcast, where we explore solutions to some of the world's most critical challenges in energy and the built environment. Thank you for joining the first episode in our Engineering and Net Zero Future series. I'm your host, Katie Zimmerman. It's an exciting and interesting time for energy transition. In the last few weeks, President Biden has agreed to cut U.S. emissions in half by 2030. Globally, everyone is gearing up for November when we have COP26, the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Following our recent What's Your Decarbonization Score webinar, today's guests will discuss the key drivers behind ambitious net zero goals by industries, governments, and organizations, and the keys to mapping and delivering on these targets. I'd like to introduce Dan Carter, Wood's Global Director of Decarbonization and New Energies. Dan is responsible for our decarbonization strategy and new energy offerings across a wide range of industries. He is based in Reading, UK. Also joining us is Steve Kaiser, Wood's energy sector leader in the Americas. An agent of change with extensive energy and infrastructure experience, he helps deliver services related to the energy transition, enabling operations to be more efficient and sustainable. Steve is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. We are also pleased to be joined by one of our commercial analysis partners from Wynn McKenzie's consulting practice, Melanie Vargas. With her market experience in energy and natural resources across the value chain, Melanie advises a wide variety of clients on technology and investments to accelerate the energy transition. She is based in Houston, Texas. To kick off today's episode, I'd like to talk to the recent virtual Global Leadership Summit hosted by the Biden administration on Earth Day. With the new U.S. 2030 target, more than half of the world's economy is now committed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Dan, how will countries and organizations stay on path to achieve these commitments? Thanks, Katie. I think it's important to point out, first of all, that America represents less than 15% of the world's global emissions. The summit that um, was hosted by President Biden on World Earth Day brought together leaders from more than 40 organizations around the world and also followed up similar announcements from the UK and the EU in bringing forward uh, their goals and objectives to reduce carbon emissions by 2030. But we still need to put in place the roadmaps to achieve them. So, you know, as part of the solution to the problem, what we need now is action to ultimately meet the net zero objectives that Um, governments and geographies are putting in place. Steve, as people set out to act on their roadmaps to decarbonization, what trends are you seeing in GHG reduction? Certainly the past year and into 2021 has seen an explosion of different options, different measures for the decarbonization journey for different customers and and clients. Um, You know, the first one is the energy efficiency programs, uh, tend to be the, the first one that companies start with. They're less capital intensive, um, seem to be a bit easier to implement. Uh, and you may not think it, it makes a big difference, but I actually was, was reading a Department of Energy study uh, just the other day that estimates a, a 30% savings in energy usage uh, by implementing an effective efficiency program at an office level. So uh, kind of an easy way to get started with a carbon footprint reduction. Uh, but certainly, you know, some other ones, facility modifications looks like it's uh, a popular one, uh, renewable energy sources, obviously, is at, at the forefront of a decarbonization plan. Um, you know, it just has exploded in the last couple of years. I mean, in, in 2020, wind uh, generation grew by 12 percent. 
uh, solar grew by 22%, and that's over a record year in 2019. So we're continuing to see the, the renewable energy uh, drive this uh, decarbonization journey. And that's across a, a variety of project sizes. We're seeing some massive uh, solar and wind farm developments, but also we're getting questions from customers on microgrids, you know, much, much smaller scale to power uh, critical infrastructure uh, and even other renewable types, uh, renewable natural gas and uh, getting into nuclear small modular reactors has seen a, a big investment. Melanie, building on the solutions that Steve talked about, from a commercial perspective, what level of investment do we need in place to accelerate the energy transition? First, I'd like to echo thoughts from Dan and Steve. Um, funding and roadmaps are key and all the solutions are going to be needed. Um, in terms of investment, Wood McKenzie estimates 40 to $50 trillion of investment is needed over the next 20 years to get on track to two degrees or one and a half degrees C. That's double what our base case estimate is. So although we're seeing a lot of movement, we're not seeing strong enough market signals in terms of investment today. And so that brings us to carbon price schemes, which are a primary mechanism to accelerating investment. We estimate developed economies will need an implicit carbon price of $110 to $160 per ton of CO2 by 2030. We think that's possible by 2030 with some countries getting there sooner than others. The third is net zero targets. And we've seen those set at the national and the corporate level. Um, oil and gas majors are doing it. The EU Green Deal included a net zero commitment. China now has a plan to peak its emissions in 2030 and reach net zero by 2060. And as Dan mentioned earlier, recent announcements by the Biden administration mean the U.S. is now joining the fray as well. The key takeaway here is there's a lot of investment needed to ensure the world has the energy needed to fuel the economy and transition to cleaner solutions. And while market signals are positive today, there's more work to do to get on track. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the market factors and incentives that are driving the decarbonization agenda. Melanie, can you shed some light on what it will take to transition cleaner solutions, as you mentioned, and reach climate goals? we need to see unprecedented cuts in emissions across all sectors of the economy. About 50% of the emissions cuts that are needed already have scalable solutions that are advancing at pace, notably renewable generation and power and electric vehicles and transport. There's another 50% of emissions that are largely associated to energy intensive industrial and extractive industries and the residential and commercial energy sector that are much harder to cut and that's where we're gonna need advanced technologies such as hydrogen and CCS to achieve targets. The deployment of renewables and other advanced technologies is needed so that the world can shift the role of fossil fuels to less than 8 billion tons of oil equivalent and 63% of primary energy demand by 2040. That's a really big change. Melanie, what are some changes that industries and governments could make to maximize emissions reductions? Looking at the carbon intensity of oil and gas production in North America compared to other parts of the world, the biggest area where operators can make a difference is around the upstream and methane emissions, and also in the midstream, finding ways to reduce scope one or two emissions associated with transportation. North America assets are more carbon intensive in the upstream and also 
travel longer distances to export markets. And so those are areas that may get more scrutiny when we start to see benchmarking on a global basis. Dan, what do you see as the key factors in driving decarbonization? For me, there's three clear factors that we need to address. There's technology, there's policy frameworks and financing. So first of all, with technology, we've seen deployment of some of the technologies necessary for net zero deployed at scale. For example, carbon capture and storage solutions. But we also need to develop those further technologies that are going to contribute to meeting those goals. So green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, Many organizations are starting to plan those projects at relative scale. But if you look at green hydrogen in particular, we're seeing projects announced of scales of one gigawatt or greater. But actually, the largest project currently operating in place is only 25 megawatts. So even though that's a scalable solution for green hydrogen in terms of bringing on more and more modules for electrolysis, there is a long way to go in terms of being a cost-effective solution for a gigawatt plus scale compared to 25 megawatts. And that's only going to develop as manufacturing capacity increases, knowledge around those technology increases, and they're deployed on larger and larger scales on real projects. Secondly, with regard to policy frameworks, there's two parts to this. First of all, there's carbon taxes that can drive long-term change. So, for example, putting in place carbon taxes across a wider degree of industrial sectors that help to underpin um, some of the anchor projects. And then secondly, there's government funding. So using the UK as an example, we're seeing government funding mechanisms being used to support anchor projects to develop decarbonisation clusters and put in place the key infrastructure around carbon capture and storage hydrogen and hydrogen transportation networks that's going to be key to building out facilities in those regional areas to meet the decarbonisation goals. And lastly is finance. So we are seeing many fund managers, many financial institutions uh, start to use sustainable criteria as a key part of granting funding for projects. So investments have to be led with a view to the end goal in mind, but actually they also have to take account of the risks around technology scale up, policies, and whether those policies are going to remain in place for a longer period of time in order to access the finance to realize them. So at the moment, it's a circular argument and we need to break out of that in order to move things forward. Yeah, I think finances and the money side of the equation and, uh, and gaining access to capital I think it really was put on the forefront uh, just here recently, I think in, in January of this year, where Gary Fink, uh, who was the CEO of BlackRock, uh, and BlackRock, if you're not familiar, is the largest uh, asset and investment firm in the world. Uh, so they're a significant player in this journey. Uh, but they have issued sort of a, a mandate to uh, basically invest in companies that share in their sustainability and net zero economy and, and having a plan for that. Uh, to gain access to key capital. But I think also with that is is a key message of the partnership that's building between uh, the, the private sector, the public sector, and the, and the finance world, and, and realizing that you kind of need all three components in order to make this work. And so I think the commitments from these financial investment companies is a, a key component to that and gaining the capital that's needed for uh, this kind of investment. 
Recently, ExxonMobil posted an editorial in the Wall Street Journal calling for what many have cited would be a $100 billion CO2 hub in Houston. Dan, to follow up on what you said about industrial clusters in the UK, what does it take for the concept to go global? Well, so for those cluster concepts to go global, I think, you know, again, it, it comes back to those regulatory frameworks. So identifying the potential for those clusters to decarbonize, the industries within those clusters working together to maximize that potential, but also to maximize the funding opportunities that will be in place. You know, Exxon's $100 billion plus is um, a, a global commitment. You know, the figures that, that Melanie from Wood Mackenzie brought out was you know, 40 to $50 trillion required globally to meet uh, net zero goals and to limit climate change to that one and a half degree pathway. So it is a significant challenge, but it's a significant challenge that needs to be thought about on a global scale, but employed at a local scale. And if you think about it, it's, it's a trend that's emerged in our industry over time in terms of the wider oil and gas. Yeah, we've seen some of the, the majors back out of offshore investments replaced by smaller companies who are sweating those assets and delivering them. At a downstream scale, we're seeing more integration between refining and petrochemicals to maximize the value from crude oil. And this is exactly the same. So we need power providers, downstream producers, midstream companies who own the transportation networks to be able to yeah, put aside to some respect their own commercial incentives and drivers, but identify what is the most cost-effective solution for that particular cluster of industry as a whole. And by doing that, they will also benefit their own organizations when it comes to minimizing capital investment in meeting their net zero targets. The Climate Action 100 benchmark in March 2021 looked at over 150 companies, finding that 52% have net zero targets, yet only 9% have a clear decarbonization strategy to deliver on those ambitions. Dan, as one of the minds behind Wood's SCORE methodology, a structured approach to setting and delivering a successful decarbonization roadmap, can you tell us about how it works and helps clients to achieve their goals? Sure. Well, I think you know, the decarbonization challenge, Katie, there are many different drivers. They don't all apply to every single company or industry, but there are also many potential solutions. So against that complex backdrop we've already talked about around technology readiness, policy, target setting. So really our decarbonization score methodology takes a company's existing carbon baseline or can help with baselining looks at how that organization is operating with respect to markets, policies, and their own ESG goals to help them put in place targets for decarbonization if they're not in place already. But we'll then screen a number of opportunities against an asset level, country level, or even an organizational wide level to put in place the most cost-effective policy for reducing their overall carbon emissions. That can be against substitution, so power or feedstock, carbon capture, carbon capture and storage, offsetting emissions either across an asset or product portfolio or by employing solutions such as natural climate investments, and reducing emissions in the first place, so making sure the assets are efficient, 
they're being run and operated as an efficient way as possible, thereby reducing the carbon footprint that you're working off of to start with. Taking all those options through a techno-economic evaluation, building in levers that are important to the individual organization and helping them select a roadmap for project implementation that fits with their goals. And that could be against an ultimate 2050 objective. It could be against a number of horizons to get from where we are today um, to 2050 with incremental investment over a period of time. Steve, as someone familiar with Wood's score methodology and helping clients to map these goals, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't think it can be understated that 2020 was a, a challenging year and, and certainly one of change and great transition and challenges, uh, but also did present some opportunities. Of course, in addition to the pandemic, uh, there was a number of recent events across North America uh, you know, that show the importance of energy transition, uh, building a resilient environment, uh, and the overall decarbonization momentum. Uh, there were severe weather events, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, and the like. So there's certainly a sense of urgency to tackle these challenges. So how do we take that momentum and really put it into reality? And I think the first step is, is understanding what the individual risks and challenges are that are impacting our, our nations, our communities, our organizations, and businesses. Because uh, everybody's got their own different operating conditions, different unique risk factors uh, specific to their own market segments. You know, major utility customers, they have got certainly a long track record uh, of providing reliable, safe electricity to their customers. Uh, but in the last few years, that has been challenged uh, with the recent events, the, the fires, the, the freezes, the hurricanes um, that have provided a significant disruption to their operations. Uh, not to mention the renewables that we've talked so much about already that provide just that that variability in power that uh, or power generation that can really disrupt a transmission grid if i'm in the industrial manufacturing uh, sector you know looking hard at, a, at the risk associated with the decarbonization journey so i you know can i continue to manufacture produce these products uh, in a cost-effective manner uh, while meeting my corporate uh, decarbonization commitments and goals. I think there's a, a lot of risks there for certainly loss of market share and, and profitability, um, but potentially a failure to meet corporate commitments or regulatory requirements, potential loss of future capital investment dollars. Uh, so at Wood, we certainly work with our customers on identifying those specific risks tailor-made for their individual companies or entities or markets uh, before we really start embarking on uh, developing solutions. Melanie, where are you seeing the strongest commitments and progress in accelerating decarbonization? It's no surprise that where we see the strongest commitments in the energy sector are from the integrated majors and utilities. Utilities have policy mechanisms supporting their transition and majors have strong balance sheets, R&D budgets, cross valley chain capabilities. All that positions them really well to develop new energy technologies and make commercial returns today, growing new business lines and renewable technology. Non-integrated producers, midstreamers or downstream players such as refiners or exporters may not have the capital to invest or the ability to take on risks that the majors have. These companies are going to benefit from the innovation of the utilities and the majors, and they're likely gonna require technology and investment partnerships to achieve decarbonization targets as well as policy mechanisms like federal grants to help reduce the risk for them. There are two key areas where Wood McKinsey recommends energy companies that don't know where to start focus first. 
First is understanding the carbon intensity of their portfolios and the risk to their legacy asset base across these multiple scenarios. And second is identifying and screening new opportunities in renewables and advanced technologies. It all goes back to the need for a structured approach and roadmap like we've been talking about. Thanks for your insights today. One last question I'd like to ask. Knowing that countries and industries are at different places in their decarbonization journey, what's the key to success when it comes to delivering on a decarbonization roadmap? So for me, Katie, breaking it down into simple modules, understanding what your carbon footprint is today, being clear about the targets that you want to achieve that are realistic for you as an organization, and putting in place the methodologies and processes to identify the roadmap of how to get there. That all gets built around the framework we talked about earlier on with that three-pronged strategy of technology, policy, and finance, but without the plan in place, those three things don't matter. From what I have seen in my interactions with clients, companies are struggling to take steps today to be positioned for these potential outcomes because they're needing to make decisions and investments now for changes that may not come for another decade. Knowing your capabilities and the gaps is also key, and the use of partnerships will be critical to managing risk and developing new commercial models on the road to decarbonization. Certainly a lot of benefits to taking action and, and hopefully in choosing the right partner with somebody like Wood, uh, you know, to, to meet the corporate commitments that have been made in your organizations, uh, you know, that's building brand and reputation in the marketplace is important. Um, it can be a cost-effective uh, solution when done right as far as the decarbonization journey. Um, you know, people want to work for organizations that have a plan towards net zero. It's a, a great tool for uh, attracting and retaining top talent that want to be a part of that journey. Uh, certainly, there's a number of financial incentives and and uh, but lastly, I think it's just about building a more sustainable future and hopefully leaving our our world in a better environment tomorrow than we have uh, you know, today or yesterday. And that brings us to the close of this episode on engineering a net zero future. If you would like to connect with today's guests or explore related insights, please visit us at woodplc.com slash podcast, where you can also subscribe and receive updates to the Wood Podcast. Here, you can also find a link to our recent What's Your Decarbonization Score webinar. At Wood, our curiosity keeps us pushing, innovating, making the impossible possible. Thank you for joining us today on this journey. Take care and have a great day.